Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Coffee and Cases. Yet another week and here we are again, still apart. I know that this is what we need to do right now as good citizens, but I am so ready for Maggie and me to be back together for an episode. So my fingers are still crossed, sleuth hounds, that it will happen sooner rather than later. So as Maggie and I have said in recent weeks, if you are new to Coffee and Cases podcast, please know that our podcast has changed slightly as our world is adjusting to a global pandemic. While we are being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, and to not gather in large groups, we ask that you bear with us as our podcast has changed a little as well. I hope that you took the advice that Maggie and I have given you the past couple of weeks and have just taken some time to look around, to appreciate what you have, to listen to a friend, to practice a new hobby, and to still see wonder in this world. Thank you for bearing with us and for understanding. Stay together, united in the human spirit, even if not physically, and stay safe. Now onto this week's episode. I remember my dad telling me stories of my grandma having some form of ESP. He would tell me of the time when he was in Vietnam and would write letters home. And he said that the very next day after mailing a letter, he would get a response from my grandma that had the answers to the questions he had just asked. Well obviously with the time it took for mail to get from the United States to Vietnam, it was like she had predicted what would be on his mind. He even told me that she sent him a cowbell because she felt he would need it for protection and that the very week he received it, it saved his life. I loved those stories. I thought it was so cool that she seemed to know something before it happened. I had felt, like many of us have, feelings of deja vu, like we'd lived through a moment before and so we knew what was coming. Now, usually my feelings, however, revolved around places for some reason, houses that I'd seen in dreams and that then I would see in real life. But... In fourth grade, I had a dream that the boy in my class whom I had a crush on had broken up with his girlfriend. And I walked into my classroom the next morning to find out that my crush and his girlfriend had broken up. When, and and I'm sorry that I got excited over someone's heartbreak, but when a friend of mine in class told me the news and then she asked me if I liked my crush, my mind raced. First, I lied and said that no, 
I don't like Jason because I didn't want the other kids in the class who were listening to the conversation to know about my crush. But the second thought that quickly succeeded that feeling of fear was one of like wonder. Could it be? Had I predicted the future just like my grandma? And if so, how? You see, it wasn't just the stories that my dad told me about my grandma that fascinated me. I was also curious about stories I'd heard of people who seemed to have a similar inexplicable insight into the past, who would just know information about someone who had passed away, things they couldn't possibly know, or people who would speak in a language that he or she had never studied, like they had lived a life prior to this one. So when I came across the story for this week, that fascination was quickly renewed, as you're about to see. This is the story of the Pollock twins. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Instead of repeating our requests for more reviews, as Maggie and I normally do with each episode, I wanted to tell you yet again how much we miss hearing from you. When Maggie and I get those written reviews, we squeal because we love hearing from you, as I did over our newest review that mentioned our coverage of the boy of Somosierra. We want to hear from you. Your voice, your opinion matters so much to us. We love when you comment on Apple Podcasts and on our Facebook page. And it really does. I'm not just saying this. It really makes us feel like we are creating friendships with you, with people all across the globe. So again this week, instead of merely asking for five-star ratings, I'm going to switch it up again and just say that Maggie and I want to hear from you. You guys know that we are both teachers and you might not know this, but it is Teacher Appreciation Week. So... I'm kind of thinking that that makes it a perfect time for you to show your appreciation by leaving us a written review and sharing our podcast with at least one friend. Maybe you have a friend who has a long drive ahead. Maybe you have a friend who's just bored at home. Maybe you have a friend who loves true crime or I'm just saying you could always share about our podcast with that friend on social media 
And I mean, if the rest of your friend group and the world just happens to see that recommendation, I mean, that would be pretty awesome. Now, after that shameless plug onto this week's episode, our story this week goes all the way back to 1957. In fact, it begins on May 5th, 1957, 63 years to the day prior to the writing of this episode. But let me start with some information about the family involved in this week's story, the family of John and Florence Pollock. According to an article by Walter Simkew, John and Florence Pollock from Bristol, England, made a living by managing a grocery business and a dairy delivery service. John and Florence had born four boys, so when Florence finally gave birth to a girl, Joanna, in 1946, the couple was excited to navigate this new world of raising a little girl. As the family was continuing to grow, they decided to move to Wickham, England, to a home with an orchard and gardens, and I don't know about you sleuth hounds, but that sounds so idyllic to me, this image of just strolling through the gardens in an afternoon. Now, I'll be honest, I could never care for those gardens because I do not have a green thumb my college roommate Katie and I even killed a cactus that we had as a plant in our dorm room, if that tells you anything. And another example, my stepson and his wife got me one of those tulips that comes in a vase that all you have to do is keep water to the level that's marked on it. And they even commented to me, they were like, here you go, Allison, we bought you a plant that you can't kill. Well, fast forward, to a week later and I had killed it because I put it in direct sunlight and it wasn't supposed to be. So the moral of the story is do not trust me with caring for your plants, but the idea of a garden that someone much more capable than I am has cared for, well, that to me sounds like heaven. And it was heaven for the Pollock family for four years until they decided to move to Hexham when Joanna was four years old. That move to Hexham was initially also one of joy when Florence found that she was pregnant again and gave birth to a second daughter named Jacqueline in 1951. Despite the five-year age gap, the two girls, Joanna and Jacqueline, were very close. Well, they primarily just had each other to play with. Their father was working quite often, and so was their mother. In fact, Florence worked so often that the image in Jacqueline's head of her mother, see, Joanna was off to school already, but Jacqueline was still quite young, that image was of her mother running around in this one particular smock that she would wear while delivering dairy so that her good clothes wouldn't get wet from the sloshing milk. And Florence worked so much that her mother, Joanna and Jacqueline's grandmother, who lived with them, was the primary caretaker for the girls. In addition to the grandmother's care, Jacqueline, who was the baby of the family, 
would look to her older sister, Joanna, for guidance. And by all accounts, Joanna naturally took on that mothering role for her younger sister. They loved each other fiercely and they loved to play and use their imagination. According to every account that I read, they especially loved the park and the playground swings in Hexham. They loved to play with their toys, to play pretend and comb their father John's hair. They loved to write and enact plays for the family, costumes and all. As with most any child, sometimes their play led to injuries. On one occasion, when Jacqueline was three, she was running around outside and fell, hitting her face on a bucket, causing her to have to get three stitches at the top of her nose near her right eyebrow, which, even after it healed, produced a scar that would show itself more clearly in the cold. Other than small episodes like that one, though, life was fairly uneventful until May 5th, 1957. On that morning, the Pollock family was getting ready for church when there was a knock at the door. The resounding thudding came from Anthony, a nine-year-old neighborhood friend who wondered if 11-year-old Joanna and six-year-old Jacqueline might be able to walk on to church with him ahead of the rest of the family. Not seeing any harm, John and Florence agreed. Meanwhile, streets away, a woman was fatefully headed to that same walking path to church. She, however, was in a car. Her name was Marjorie Wynn, and she had been dealt one bad hand after another. Her husband had passed away five years earlier. She had never managed to recover from that loss, and she suffered from severe depression. And because of that depression and recent events, she was now at risk of losing custody of her two daughters. In a moment of extremely poor decision-making, Marjorie had taken nearly a whole bottle of painkillers before she set off for this drive. At the same time, the three young children had set out on their walk to church. They didn't get far before their paths crossed Marjorie's, or rather Marjorie's crossed theirs. Her car crossed lanes and jumped a curb, striking the three children. Anthony died from his injuries in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and Joanna and Jacqueline died upon impact. What's disturbing is that, and I found this verified in several sources, the police found that Marjorie had hit the young children intentionally. She was committed to a mental institution as a result. This tragedy rocked the Pollock family and the town as a whole. John and Florence grieved deeply, packing up the toys and clothing that had belonged to the girls so that they weren't visible reminders to the rest of the family. That would have been too hard altogether to see those toys and costumes, especially if they were to piece their lives back together as best as they could. But they would have given anything to have those girls back. John Pollock used to make that plea to God all the time, in fact. 
It was hard on everyone, but the Pollock family tried. John Pollock's source of ease, though, was a little bit misguided. He convinced himself that he and Florence would have two more children, both girls. Most friends he spoke with believed that this was just a delusion built from John's pain, especially as he reportedly told Florence that Joanna and Jacqueline would be reborn through these new children. But eight months after the accident, the Pollocks finally did get some good news. Florence was pregnant again. According to an article by Aaron McCann, Florence went to her family doctor about the pregnancy and even though he only detected, the doctor, only detected a single heartbeat, John Pollock was convinced that Florence was still going to have twins, the reincarnation of their daughters who were tragically taken. His obsession with this idea was causing Florence to feel depression. She heard the doctor say that there was only one heartbeat. And as Catholics, they didn't believe in reincarnation. So why was John insistent upon something impossible? The couple fought about his seeming delusions almost daily. They even discussed divorce because Florence couldn't handle John's obsession with reliving the past instead of focusing on healing and building a new future. Shockingly, despite all scientific evidence to the contrary, and despite Florence's own protests, she gave birth on October 4th, 1958, to identical twin girls. The Pollocks named them Jillian and Jennifer. As identical twins, that means they developed from a single egg, monozygotic. It's because of this development that identical twins share the same physical characteristics. But despite being identical, a genetic anomaly occurred and they had different birthmarks. Jennifer had a scar, or a birthmark that looked like a scar, at the top of her nose near her right eyebrow. Just like the scar, Jacqueline had gotten from falling on the bucket. John was convinced that his vision of reincarnation had come to fruition. When Jillian and Jennifer were three months old, the family moved to Whitley Bay. Now, I didn't read this anywhere, but I can imagine that this move might have been a good one, especially for Florence. I know that if I personally were concerned about my husband's delusions that our new twins were reincarnations, I would not want to be living in the same house where I had raised those daughters who had died. I would think that living in that house would just strengthen the delusion and not alleviate it. So I would have been excited about a move. But it seems as though Florence couldn't escape what was going to happen. When Jillian and Jennifer were two, babbling away and coming into their own personalities, new things began happening that had to have given the doubtful Florence pause. 
In Erin McCann's article, she notes that despite Jillian and Jennifer being identical twins, they began to show physical differences. McCann argued that Jennifer, remember she's the one with the same scar, well, in Jennifer's case, birthmark, as Jacqueline had at the top of her nose, had also begun to take on Jacqueline's physical shape, a stockier build, while Jillian was thin, just as Joanna had been. Even family members started to notice similarities. The twins walked in ways that mimicked their dead sisters. Even developmental milestones matched. Family recalled that Joanna had learned to write quickly while Jacqueline had struggled. Similarly, Jillian easily learned to write while Jennifer, again, just like Jacqueline, had trouble, even holding her pencil in a fist when she wrote, just as Jacqueline used to do. Was there something real here? When Jillian and Jennifer were four, the family moved back to Hexham, to the very town in which Joanna and Jacqueline had been killed. Once there, the bizarre similarities rapidly increased. Jillian and Jennifer, who had no memories of the area since the family had moved when the twins were only three months old, began pointing out landmarks that they couldn't possibly remember. They pointed out the school that Joanna and Jacqueline had attended, but Jillian and Jennifer said, there's our school. And at the time, the school was obscured by a wall. It wasn't as though the school was even in full view. How had they known? They asked to go to the playground and said how much they loved to swing on the swings there, but again, that was a memory of Joanna and Jacqueline, not Jillian and Jennifer. Other odd occurrences and conversations had taken place as well. According to Walter Simcue, at one point, Jillian had turned and pointed out Jennifer's birthmark at the top of her nose and announced, that's the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket, even though it was Jacqueline, not Jennifer, who had fallen on a bucket. One day, perhaps to test the reincarnation theory John had always believed, Florence gave Jillian and Jennifer a bunch of old toys that had been boxed up since Joanna and Jacqueline's death. Although initially dubious, when Florence allowed the girls to play with the toys, it's reported that Jillian and Jennifer correctly divided them between themselves, with Jennifer getting all of Jacqueline's old toys and Jillian getting all of Joanna's. One source said that the twins even called particular toys Santa's gifts. And those toys had been Christmas gifts given to Joanna and Jacqueline. One particular toy, a laundry ringer, that had belonged to Joanna was pulled from the box. And immediately Jillian yelled, there's my toy ringer. What's more, just like Joanna and Jacqueline had, Jillian and Jennifer also often asked to comb the hair of family members, especially their father, John. Even the relationship between the twins began to mimic that of Joanna and Jacqueline. Because Joanna had been five years older and they mostly played with each other, remember sleuth hounds, that Joanna had been the nurturer for Jacqueline. Well, even though Jillian and Jennifer were identical twins and thus the same age, 
Jillian began to take on a mothering role with Jennifer. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily odd, but this next story is a bit more off-putting for me personally. According to the article by Walter Simcue, when the twins were nearly five, John Pollock was preparing to paint part of their home and had taken some boxes out of storage. He reportedly put on Florence's old dairy smock that she used to wear to protect her clothes from the sloshing milk, and he put it on to protect his own clothing from the paint. Now, this smock had been in storage since before the twins could remember because Florence had stayed home to take care of the twins after she had given birth to them. Well, when Jennifer, the twin reputed to have been reincarnated from the younger Jacqueline, saw the smock, she said to John, why are you wearing mom's coat? According to Simcute, Jillian didn't recognize the coat, but that could be because Joanna had been older and would have been at school when their mother put on the smock daily to go deliver milk and wouldn't have seen it every day as the younger Jacqueline would have. John Pollock apparently asked Jennifer how she knew the smock was her mother's, and Jennifer replied that her mother had worn the smock to deliver milk, something that Jennifer would have never seen her mother do. Then, the twin girls began exhibiting fears and acting in ways that made it seem like they truly were in tune with the spirits of Joanna and Jacqueline. Florence had recalled that while Joanna and Jacqueline had never exhibited any fears toward cars, the twins, Jillian and Jennifer, had, according to Simcue, quote, a much stronger fear of approaching vehicles than other children of their age, end quote. To be more specific, according to the article Pollock Twins Proof of Reincarnation, the twins developed a phobia around age four and a half, and when they would see a moving car, they would shriek, the car is coming to get us. They began having nightmares about being chased by cars. Eerily, one evening, John and Florence found the twins playing in a room, and Jennifer was sprawled on the floor, her head cradled in Jillian's lap. Jillian was stroking Jennifer's hair, trying to calm her. They were playing, but the scene they were acting out was anything but childish. Jillian explained to Jennifer that there was blood coming from her eyes because the car had hit her there. Around this time, the Pollock twins came to the attention of famed psychologist Dr. Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, who studied reincarnation in children. Now, some of you may think that Dr. Stevenson might not have had the respect of his medical community because of his strong belief in reincarnation, but the opposite was actually true. He had earned accolades from international colleagues. Dr. Stevenson had studied the idea of reincarnation for decades and looked into thousands and thousands of cases that were sent to him. Most of these cases were in Asian countries where a belief in reincarnation was already prevalent, but that was because Dr. Stevenson thought that in Western countries, if a child began speaking of reincarnation, that 
the discussion might be dismissed by parents or the child might be told not to speak of such things and thus repress those memories. Dr. Stevenson studied Jillian and Jennifer Pollock from 1964 until 1985 when both Florence and John Pollock had passed away. But despite the long period of study, Dr. Stevenson didn't have a chance to study active reincarnation with the Pollock twins because at the age of five in 1963, all seeming recollection of those past lives stopped. No more bizarre coincidences, no more odd and unexplainable comments. The twins began developing their own unique personalities and they went on to live very normal lives. In fact, the only other recollection of a previous life was when Jillian stated that she had vivid dreams of playing in a sandbox in Wickham, England. From those dreams, she was able to describe in detail a town which she herself had never visited. Despite little first-hand witnessing of activity by Dr. Stevenson, he was able to draw on his study of the twins in his book entitled Children Who Remember Previous Lives, A Question of Reincarnation. While Dr. Stevenson described 14 cases of reincarnation, one of those cases was that of the Pollock twins. What many argue is likely the strongest evidence for the belief in reincarnation. Dr. Stevenson believed so as well. Now, sleuth hounds, I want to know what you think. Is it even possible that the spirits of Joanna and Jacqueline could dwell inside of Jillian and Jennifer? Or is it all a fantasy? First, the case for reincarnation. One of the primary details that drew Dr. Stevenson to the Pollock twins was that birthmark Jennifer had that mirrored the scar on Jacqueline. Apparently, the sharing of bodily markings like this are common in cases of reincarnation, according to Dr. Stevenson, and particularly compelling in this case, since Jillian had not shared the same birthmark as her identical twin. There are many religions in the world that believe in reincarnation, Hinduism, Buddhism, the belief that life itself is cyclical and not new, that you live and then after death, you live again. Even the idea that the human spirit is something that cannot die is an element we see in most every religion. Some, like mine, believe that your soul will either go to heaven or hell, but the spirit is still alive. In those that believe in reincarnation, that spirit lives again in another physical embodiment. Some cite the fact that John and Florence Pollock were devout Catholics as proof of reincarnation in this case, particularly because even Florence, someone who did not believe in reincarnation and was troubled by even the accusation of such a thing, came to believe it to be true. The idea that someone close to the situation with an emotional desire to deny its validity instead believes its validity is, for Dr. Stevenson and those who trust in reincarnation, the best proof. Plus, 
the Pollocks are not the only children for whom something like this has occurred. In fact, sleuthhounds, if you have time, check out the documentary about a little boy named Cameron from Scotland who believed he had in a previous life lived on the island of Barra. A documentary of his story called The Boy Who Lived Before can be found on YouTube. Now, from the opposing perspective, many believe that reincarnation is mere fancy. Those who think that the story of the Pollock twins is false argue that the girls could have known information about their dead sisters from others and somehow internalized it. While John and Florence Pollock didn't speak of Joanna and Jacqueline to the twins, that doesn't mean that no one else did. Remember, the Pollocks also had four sons, and there were other family members who lived with them. Perhaps the twins had heard stories about their sisters, had heard about their toys or their interests. We all know how fallible memory is. Maggie and I have even discussed it in previous episodes. They could have heard a story and thought it was their own memory and not one that had been told to them by others about their sisters. And especially given how much the Pollocks were grieving the loss of Joanna and Jacqueline, could they have maybe projected onto the twins something like the fear of cars? Maybe because of the tragic death, Florence subconsciously winced or jumped even when a car would start and the twins had picked up on those changes. Most believe that it's false because when the girls were five, old enough to think for themselves, the memory stopped. But the thing is, sleuthhounds, we don't know. Our brains... The role the environment plays on us, it's all so complex. But you know, there is a final possibility. Could it be something in the middle? To illustrate, let me tell you about an idea by famed psychiatrist Carl Jung. Jung believed in a concept called the collective unconscious. It's the belief that we inherit memories from the past. The idea that there are memories and impulses there that did not originate with our own experiences. We joke about it currently, wondering about the baby names as a result of this pandemic. How it could change our world forever. But, you know, not in a joking manner. I wonder. Will it alter how our children react to new diseases? how their children understand social responsibility? Can memories or fear be passed on through genetics? The study of epigenetics aims to prove just that. The prefix epi means on top of or in addition to, so in addition to genetics. It's the study of the ways in which genes can get switched on and off, that something we inherit can change how genes display themselves, despite what our genetic code says. Richard McLean Smith, in his Unexplained podcast, noted studies of mice completed by Carrie Ressler and Brian Diaz, who found that when they conditioned mice to associate a particular smell with trauma, 
the fear associated with that smell was actually passed down through two more generations of mice. Could the same be true of people? Could the Pollock twins have inherited certain fears while in the womb? Fears of Florence Pollock losing another child to a tragic car accident? Could her memories of Joanna and Jacqueline playing with their toys have been passed on? Is anything really out of the realm of possibility? On an episode of The Oprah Show in 2008, Dr. Oz spoke with a man, Dr. Brian Weiss, who believed in psychological healing through a process called past life regression. For example, a woman by the name of Jody was terrified of dolls. Dr. Weiss believed she carried this fear from a past life. Under hypnosis, Jody recounted a previous life in which her children had died and she had been unable to save them. Weiss believes that Jody's fear of dolls stems from that past tragedy, that dolls are a symbol for her deep-seated grief of not being able to save her children. According to Dr. Oz, quote, roughly 97% of our DNA is called junk DNA. Believe me, it's not junk. There's no reason for you to have DNA strands that don't have any meaning. There is meaning there. We just don't know it. And some of that may actually be hereditary memories. The insight into events our species has collected. End quote. The collective unconscious. The eternal spirit that connects us with our ancestors. So, sleuth hounds, next time you experience deja vu, think, is this something to be brushed off? Or could this very well be a lingering glimpse into an inherited memory flickering its way into our reality. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.